Getting situated. If you don't have it bookmarked already, go ahead and turn to Esther 3. Let me get this part here. So I titled this A Long Standing Feud Reignited because we're going to see that, uh, you know, obviously Mordecai is a Jew and the, the, the person we're going to be introduced to next, Haman, is a, an Amalekite or an Agite. Um, and so the same name, basically, same people. So they are longtime enemies of God and his people. And so we kind of talked about it, right? If, we're, if you know Southern history, or if you're, I think some of you guys are from Kentucky, right? The Hatfields and McCoys. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you guys are related to them or not, but right, it's, it's a long standing feud. Uh, you have things in sports, Yankees and Red Sox fans. Um, Penguins and the Flyers, you know, depending on whatever it is, right? You have these things where you don't like the other people because just because of who they're associated with, right? And so a lot of times it's just good natured fun, but sometimes it turns into problems, right? So a few years ago, the Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants don't like each other, so some Dodgers fans got out of hand. They beat up some guy pretty bad who was a Giants fan. I think I don't remember that. Yeah, this is a few years ago. Yeah, I think they put him in a hospital. It was pretty bad, and it's all over a baseball game. Right? Ultimately, it's a baseball game that you are not playing for. Right? You were just there watching and enjoying the game, and you take it too far. Right? And so we have these things, and you may have, you know, um, if you watch superheroes or, or kind of know things, or even like Star Wars, things like that, you know, Darth Vader is at some point the arch enemy of Lou Skywalker. We at least were led to believe that at some point. You know, really, it's the Emperor. Right? But you, so you always have a bad guy and a good guy. Because it has to be something to fight against in a story. And so this is what it is where you have this, this ongoing feud because God, claimed, God said in Exodus that he would wipe out the Amalekites because of what they did to his people, right? So we're going to get into that. We, we kind of hit on it a little bit last week or so. But because King Saul in Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, he did not follow the rules, to follow the commands of God. We still have people who are around that are descendants of King Agite or King Agag and who are the Amalekites. And so now we see a few hundred years later, this problem is coming back to haunt the Jews, at least from our standpoint. It's coming back to kind of bite them a little bit because of something that King Saul didn't do. And that's also going to be important. We're going to see in a minute. We kind of read yesterday, but we, or last week, but we kind of passed over it, but we're going to bring that back because it's important also. So we're just going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 6 right now in chapter 3, then we'll get through the rest of it as we go. And so here's what the writer tells us. He says, After all this took place, King Xerxes I honored Haman, son of Hamethida the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. 
And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. So he planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Xerxes' kingdom. Right. And so here we see this. This is the setup. This is the whole problem that's going to go on for the larger part of the book here is this plot. And so this plot like last week, we kind of learned that some two guys, two guards wanted to kill the king, and it was just like a sentence or two. He, they, they planned it. They said something about it. Mordecai warned them. It was pretty much taken care of, right? Now we have this. It's going to cover quite a few chapters here because this is the main part of the book, and this is where we start seeing everybody's characters, the, the characters of who they are, Esther, Mordecai, and Haman, how they come out and what their role is in God's kingdom. And so here's the main idea, though. That people will go to extreme lengths to destroy believers, but God has other plans. Right? So I thought about kind of covering the next couple of chapters um, because it is one whole story, but we're, we'll just do it where it's a scene. We'll just do the scenes. Or the, this is, these are acts and these are scenes, so it's a little easier to, to swallow and look at and digest a little bit because there's a lot going on that we as people are not in the, in the you know, in the B.C. era, not Jewish, we, we don't know, so we need to have a few things explained to us of why certain things are mentioned and what their significance is. So if you look at your outline, we're going to look and see this first part here, these first six verses. Really, we're, we're seeing no respect, right? Just like Rodney Dangerfield, he can't get any respect. Haman can't get any respect, even though he is now the prime minister. He is essentially the vice president of the Persian kingdom. So he's, he's the number two guy in the whole kingdom, the king set it off, right? And it says, chapter 3 starts off, it says, sometime, or after these things, or really sometime later, so we don't know, we don't, we're not given a definite time frame. It just says, at some point, Xerxes made Haman the king, or made, made him the vice president or prime minister, or whatever it was called. And so this promotion to this position, Haman is now due a higher level of respect, right? There's protocol, if the vice president rolls in here, there's a whole lot of protocol that has to happen. All right, I see the people's faces, but, it, but again, and so here's the thing. Here's the question. Well, let me back up for a minute, because in Middle Eastern society particularly, honor is still a very big thing. You know, and in the military, it's that way too. You, you, the commander, somebody comes in, some big, big, big wig, we'll call them. They come in, they're, they're due certain protocols, Right? Get in, they, get, they get on the helicopter last, they get off the helicopter first, that type of stuff, out of the car. Um, but the Middle East is still very honor-driven. Same thing with, the, with a lot of Asians and things like that, where if you do the wrong thing, if you say the wrong thing, you're going to upset somebody because you've just now insulted their entire family even though you didn't intend to. And so you have to do a bunch of backpedaling to, to try to make up for this and try to correct this problem. But every... Every job like this, right, every position like the vice presidency deserves a certain level of respect. But here's the question. Do we give respect to the office or to the person? Right? Do you give respect to the office or the person? Because that takes the personality out of it. Because sometimes, like I saw some, some heads and faces, you may not like the current president or vice president, or you may not like the, the previous one or whatever, but that person is still the president or vice president, regardless of how you voted and how you feel about it. So that office is due respect, no matter who it is. 
If you like the person, we'll say that's kind of the easier way to do it, it is easier to give respect to the person himself or herself, right? Because you don't have a problem with them, we'll say. But, but there's also a thing where, look, I'm still going to respect you. And that's kind of what it comes down to is, is what they're trying to tell Mordecai is like, look, dude, the king said you need to respect him and pay homage and do whatever you need to do. So you just need to do it because he's the guy. So that's it. But Haman or Mordecai has a different story. He has a different idea because he does no such thing. Mordecai says no. Right? I like the CSB in some of their versions. It says actually, it says Mordecai would not bow down. He's not going to do it. He says no. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, is why? And, and why was and then why was Haman flew, why was he filled with rage that this happens? Is it because you're disrespecting me? You're not respecting my authority? You know, I'm the vice president. I'm, I'm number two in charge of this place. You know, short of me, I can kill everybody except the king. And it's cool, right? That's kind of how he was looking at it. Why would Mordecai not want to pay homage or revere Haman? Now again, we're given two pieces of information here. One, that we already knew that Mordecai is a Jew. Right, we know that he's a Jew, but they kind of reiterate because this is kind of coming out for the rest of the, the people in the story. That they say, oh yeah, by the way, Haman, he's a Jew. Like, oh, all right. And so we're given another piece of information in, in chapter 2 that says when Mordecai is introduced, we kind of passed over it, like I said, but it's important. It says he is a Benjamite. So he is a part of of King Saul's line, or at least, the very least, he's part of King Saul's tribe. I don't know if he's directly descended from King Saul, but you can wend your way across the, the family trees to say, look, I'm related to him. You know, he's my great-great-great-uncle, at least. You know, so I'm royalty, three, three generations removed, whatever, right? So here we have this information that he's a Jew, but he's also a Benjamite. So now... All the Jews who are listening to this story automatically know, oh, this is now a little more personal. Right? This is a little more personal because why? Because now we're given the other piece is that Haman is descended from King Agag. King Agag. Agag. He's an Aga, Agagite. Otherwise known as an Amalekite, which is way easier to pronounce. <laughs> right? So we're going to call them Amalekites from now on. But he... These Amalekites, these are the people who attacked the Israelites on their way to the promised land. Right? Like I said, I covered it beforehand. They kind of did a sneak attack on the tail end of their supply train or whatever. They, they, they attacked all the, the older people, the, the sick, the injured, the young. And they killed as many of those people as they could. Right? Just like lions attack the, 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 the injured gazelles and zebras because it's easier to catch. Right? They didn't have any chance to, to fight back. So it's, it's pretty... Pretty weak, and it's actually dishonorable, right? That is a dishonorable thing to do when you're attacking the people who are not able to defend themselves. So here we have this honor thing all wrapped into these things, right? But then later in chapter 15, or you know, 1 Samuel chapter 15, God says, all right, I need you to go. You're coming up in the, the Amalekite region, so I need you to wipe out everybody. And, and, and Saul, he says everything, right? everything, everybody. But he leaves people alive. And so again, we have this, this is where we're at now. Because Saul fails to follow commands completely. And we're going to see later in the next couple of chapters that, that it seems like God is fixing that whole problem as well. Because we have a descendant of Saul 
going to make everything right. All right, so Saul didn't do it, but the Benjamites did. We'll say it like that. But because of Haman's anger, he didn't just want to kill Mordecai, right? This long-standing feud that they have, they didn't want to just kill one person, say, just because you're disrespecting me. I want to get rid of your entire people. All of them. And we're not, we're not given a number of how many people, but we know that, that they, are, they are dispersed across the entire kingdom, right? And we're going to do that in a few minutes. But here's another thing that would be inter- is interesting, kind of, though, is that Mordecai's unwillingness to worship Haman, because it's, kind of, it's hard to tell, like, unless you hear people speak, it's hard to tell where you're from. And me being in the Air Force, you, you can hear people, and, and you hear enough people from different places, you start to get an idea of where people are from. And if you're good at it, I guess, or at least you hear enough people, you can start pinpointing, like, you're not just from the South because you have a Southern accent, but, oh, you're from Louisiana, or you're from Georgia, or, you know, you're from Boston, right? Because people from Boston have a fairly easy accent or dialect to, to pick up on, right? Out here, it's very difficult to tell because it's pretty flat once it starts getting out here for most people. But the name, his name, Haman, is thought to be possibly not a Persian name. Right, because again, these names, names where you're from have different di- different naming for different, for where you're from. So somehow Mordecai may have known that the name Haman was was an Amalekite type name. So that was why he automatically said, "No, I'm not worshiping you." And the other part of it is because he's only a person, right? But the bigger part, the bigger part for right now, maybe the earthly part, maybe the fact that. He knew that he was an Amalekite, and he knew that he was an enemy of God. And so there was mutual respect and hatred, but Haman was in a position to actually act on this hatred. Right? All, all Mordecai was doing at this point was kind of just resisting. He's like, I'm not going to do it. But we see here in the next few verses, 7 through 11, that Haman actually has enough power to do something about it, about his threat to kill everybody. So he goes in to the king in chapter 7. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Xerxes' 12th year, the pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman each day and each month, and it fell on the 12th month and the, 12th, the month of Adar. Then Haman informed King Xerxes, there is one ethnic group, and this is verse 8, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. And I will pay 375 tons of silver, or 10,000 talents, it may say, 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit into the royal treasury. So I will pay you 375 tons of silver if I can kill these people. Or if you'll kill them for me, since you're the king, you kind of have to do it. Authorize it at least. Right, so here's what we learn. So Haman and probably some other people, he probably goes to an astrologer or like a, like a fortune teller. So he goes down to Santa Monica Pier, finds a little, little shop with some lady in there, and he, she reads the tea leaves for him every month, every day for, for, for 12 months, and says, okay, when should I do this? When should I go pitch this plan to the king? Right, they're settled on that he does this on the, on the 12th month, and then so everything starts happening in the next, the first part of the month. Because he's trying to figure out what to do about his hatred. So it's not really clear if he's trying to work out what the plan should be. 
or if he's just figuring out the time to, to, to enact it, right? There's, there's not real clear, but it's probably a little bit of both, honestly. Because he already wanted to kill them, at least we already know that. But it takes him a year to go figure this part out, and he goes and asks the king's approval for his plan, for his dastardly plan, right? So he, again, he offers to pay 10,000 talents or 375 tons of silver. Now, I've seen some, in some commentaries where they try to equate it, and I've seen something like, you know, so like, I don't know, $18 million or something like that in our money is what it would kind of be maybe. So imagine 375 tons of silver, and that's, that's if, you, if you had a bunch of two-and-a-half-ton trucks, you're looking at, you know, probably 150 trucks full of silver, like dump truck size trucks of silver to pay for this. And so the reason he does this is because he's, look, they're following different laws than yours. They're, they're by themselves. They're not doing anything. They're, 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 they're not listening to you. And so the interesting thing here is that, that we see that the Jews must have been following and observing God's law, right? So it's not just like they were dispersed and forgot they were Jewish. They became more Jewish. And this was part of the exile. In a, in a, in a, in a way, this was God's part of his plan for the exile. Because they had gotten away from him for the most part. So they... He kicked them out and put them somewhere else, and they, they started becoming more Jewish. They became becoming more godly because of this. This is, this is who we are. We're not like them. We're not like the Persians. We're way different than them. Right? So all of a sudden, they start getting in and becoming this way, and they start living in their neighborhoods, and so they're, they're becoming and redeveloping their Jewishness. And they're spread all throughout the kingdom, though, but this is happening all over the place. Right? I don't think they had synagogues, but they were able to worship, most likely do all these things. And Haman says, hey, this is a threat to you, king. You got a bunch of people maybe going to uprise, right? They're going to rebel. Because just like is what, what, what got uh, Queen Vashti kicked out of the queendom, her queen throne, because she disobeyed the king. Right? That's one person. And they said, oh, all the women are not going to listen to their husbands anymore. So it's the same thing going on here. It's the same logic that he's manipulating the king with, with his pride. And so Haman says that they are both scattered and dispersed throughout the, throughout the provinces. So the CSB actually says that they are keeping themselves separate. And so the Jews are scattered through the 127 provinces of the empire. And so that's part of this. They're, they're scattered. They're dispersed through the whole area, through the entire kingdom but they're also separating themselves from other people, right? They're not hanging out with the Persians as much. They, they tend to hang out with more all the Jewish people. And so this self-imposed separateness or exclusiveness was a practice which helped them to preserve their religious and ethnic identity. Like places in New York, there's, there's neighborhoods right, full of Jewish people. There's just Jewish neighborhoods. And there's other ethnicities as well, you know, Little Italy, you know, Chinatown, all these things where people congregate because well, we're all the same. We're all from the same general area. We know the same people back home, whatever. And so they're retaining a piece of their Italianness or Jewishness or, or Africanness or whatever it is. They're living there and doing that and they're keeping it. But to the king who wants complete control, that's a threat. It's a threat to be different. It's a threat to, because I don't understand your customs and your rules. So I am going to try to get rid of you and break you of those habits. So the author is telling us that the Jews were already observing their customs and trying to not assimilate as much as possible 
into their captor's world. Right now, they spoke the language and things like that because they had to, and it was probably the language of the day. But they weren't becoming Persians. They weren't becoming of the world. Right, and so, but the fact that you have a huge group of people all the way across your kingdom in every piece basically rebelling against you, you, you just have, you basically have 127 mini rebellions going on all at once. And if they were coordinated enough, they could actually just probably overthrow everything and upset the entire piece. <clears throat> but then the king says, keep your money. Or maybe better yet, I'll get, I give back your money, right? Hey, I'm going to give you back the money. And you, give the, you do with the Jews, to the Jews, whatever you see fit. Now, he may have been kind of like when you try to pay your mom back or your parents back for something. Or you, you know, like, no, you keep it. You need it more than I do. No, here, here's it back. You know, and my mom, when she does it, she tries to like sneak money in my pocket or like she'll put it in the jacket. So I thought, this is your, your money. This is yours. You take it. Right? So maybe one of those things where he didn't really just give the money back. He said, fine, you... I'll take it, but I'm just being kind of polite because Esther says in a future chapter that her people had been sold. Right? So it seems like there's some kind of transaction. So this seems sort of just a, a, a formality in a sense where the king is, he didn't actually say, here, I'm giving you all the money back and I'll do it for free. He was just kind of being polite. But he does say, what he does say is, he's sure, I will authorize your plan. And so, and so this pending genocide gets written down. And so then we move to verses 12 through 15, so 12 to the end of the book, or the chapter. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and was written and written for each of the province in his own script. All right, so they're writing this down. So letters, this is verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. So for our calendar, we'll say this is you know, January 13th, the middle of January, and by the middle of December, you're all going to die. All the believers are going to be killed, and we're going to take all your stuff. And so, they were writing this letter, the scribes were writing this letter on the 13th day of the first month. It was actually, for them, for the Jewish calendar, it's actually like March, February. Or, you know, yeah, 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 February, March type time frame. So, here is interesting, something that only the Jews would know, and only we have to dig into the books about certain things and know and understand the Old Testament, right? So this day of the 13th day of Nisan, so the 14th day was the first day of Passover, right? We all know what Passover is. It's a celebration of deliverance from Egypt. And so the irony, one commentator says this, the irony is unmistakable. The day before celebrating freedom from Egyptian oppression, a decree had been made for their very destruction. Right? So this is like Gus getting ready to celebrate 4th of July next week, and somebody just came in and said, we're going to take a, we're just, we're, by the way, on July 3rd, we're going to burn the Constitution and get rid of it and try to erase it from everybody's memory. And we're going to kill anybody who actually tries to defend us, defend Defend the, the Constitution. Right? That would be in for us, that's essentially what it would be. Or, hey, we know you're celebrating Easter, but we're all going to kill everybody 
on Good Friday, just like, hey, you want to be like Jesus, we'll kill everybody on Good Friday, right? And so the Nazis did similar things. They decided to kill all the Jews because of various reasons, and they wanted to take all their stuff, right? That's what they were doing. They're still families today. There's people trying to get their fortunes back with people in paintings and things like that, all kinds of money and whatever they had that the Nazis had taken to pay for their world, failed world conquest. Right? It was paid for by other people's money. And so, though, they had to be written down because it was important that this, this transaction took place. But one commentator points out that because Saul did not utterly destroy this anti-Semitic race of people as God commanded him, the Jews were now almost again because of one of them during the time of Esther. So, so here it is. You didn't do your job, Saul, so now your, your relatives, distant relatives, are now paying the price. Because we did not eradicate the problem when we should have. Right? And we see certain things popping up. There's real Nazis popping up being anti-Semitic you know, because of the Jews, because Israel, who Israel is, what they are, what they've done. People who do not like Israel just because they're Jewish. And so we see this history repeating itself constantly. And so this is why it's important for us to follow through with what God commands of us. But the good thing is we're going to see over the next couple of chapters, because we have to end it here in a few minutes, but the next few chapters we're going to see how God makes our mistakes and he corrects them. Right? But for now we see this scene close. And this is a, so chapter or verse 14. Well, let me go to verse 15, excuse me. The couriers left spurred on by royal command and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink well, the city of Susa was in confusion. So we see this. Here they are. This is a movie, right? The scene is kind of going to go black. And we see two guys sitting at a table pouring a drink out of a decanter. And they're just happy about, happier than anything else that they just made this big decision to kill an entire race of people. Right? Like, ha-ha. You know, how, how evil are you to do that? How evil are you to gloat and be happy about this? So how, how, how do we, or what do we do with this chapter? Because the question probably is, how would God authorize this to happen? Because we know, we know how it ends vaguely. We know that they don't die. So that's fine. But you know, part of it is like, well, why are we even here? You know, why does God even allow us to get this far in the process? Or why does he just kill Haman automatically? Like, okay, Haman, I, I'm going to strike you dead with this cup. And that's it. You'd die from bad wine or something. Right? Because this is what people are bothered by. Like, well, how could you just let it run its course? Because <clears throat> this is not the only time that someone wants to kill all of God's people. All right, so here's our application for this part. So I have three of them. So first off is, is follow God and not man. All right, we see this in the first part of the chapter. Follow God, not man. Right. So when God gave the law to the Israelites, much of it was geared towards Loving him and obeying him, but also being very different from the world that they lived in. When you look down and you get to some of those weird ones like don't boil a baby's lamb in its, own, in its mother's milk and things like that. Those were things that the Canaanites and other, other uh, nations were doing as part of their rituals and whatnot. So it was a command to say, don't be like them. Right? Don't be like those people. Here's how you worship me properly and, and worship life that I've created everything else. 
right? Because the ancient Near East and the Egyptians and the, 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 the Persians and everybody else, they had very different systems. And the pharaohs and other kings, rulers, they were treated as gods. Right? Even through the first century, the, the Christians, the Caesars, were thought to be gods. And we said, when you said, I worship you or I am loyal to you, you are basically saying, I am loyal and worshiping the Caesar. And he's my Lord. And that's where the Christian would say, no, I only have one Lord, Jesus Christ. That's it. So for the Romans, that's competing people. That's competing positions. So the Jews in Persia, though, retained or at least did the best they could to keep their Jewishness. And the people obviously took notice because Haman knew about this. So either he was just making everything up or he had an idea. He knew exactly what was going on and exactly who they were. Because the king also didn't refute the information. So he knew. He's like, all right, I understand the threat. So Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, do not be conformed to the world. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, this is Romans 12, 1 and 2, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you may be reading Esther and going, well, how is this a good and perfect will? That he's just condemned a bunch of people to death. And of course, I'm not, we all know it, but I'm not going to say it yet, but we know that they get out of it. We see this, and then Jesus also warns his disciples, the world is going to hate you because you love me, because I, the world hates me. So every time they see us, they say, oh, you're, you're just like him, and they're going to hate you. They've twisted it a little bit and say, well, you're nothing like the Jesus we understand to be. And, of course, they've taken Jesus and put him in his worldly box. And Jesus means the world things, worldly things to them, and they have no idea what the biblical Jesus really is. And sometimes, unfortunately, though, Christians, people who claim to be Christians, do not either, to be totally honest. Right? If, we're, if we're being truthful here, that's, unfortunately, neither group really understands who Jesus is. And on some levels, we can't, but on other levels, we as Christians who claim to be little Christs should be striving and working and laboring in the text to understand exactly who Jesus is, or at least clear as enough, near enough as we can get to it, to understand who Jesus is and help explain that to people. So right part of this apologetic stuff, that's what we're doing. We want to explain, make sure people know who Jesus is. And that we are doing what, who, what he commands us to do and, and who we try to live our lives like that. But we see as the people we live in this world, because we live here, we are stuck with what's going on. We're affected by it, right? So, so one commentator says that laws can be bad and unjust. Christians cannot always use the existing laws as justification for their actions. As learned in the civil rights protest in the 1960s, that's from the commentator. But some people have found it necessary at times to break certain laws in order to correct them. Because even Martin Luther, when he, when he posted the, the theses and everything else, everything else that cascaded down from that, right, he was in open rebellion to the Catholic Church. Whether he wanted to or not was a different story, but that's what happened. Right? And, and before him, there were other people who were also in rebellion to the Catholic Church before that. But we see this, this, this happens because we need to make sure that we are following God's laws and not man's laws, whether that's civil law or religious law. And so we participate in the civil disobedience because, as Benjamin Franklin wrote, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. 
And that's where we need to always be at, is we always need to be obedient to God. So how do we do that? Second one, second, second part of the application. Love God, love each other. So we stay in Romans chapter 12. We go down to verses 9 through 13. Paul says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. The only antidote to hate is love. Mordecai didn't start a fist fight with Haman in the, in the courtyard just because. He just said, I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not going to worship you, but I'm not going to do this. And then chapter 4, he goes and we see the act of love through Esther, what she does eventually. Right? We see all this stuff happening, so we need to love God because when we're obeying and loving God, it's easy, and we're set correctly on the path, and it's easier to love everybody else, even though they may be our enemies. Because the best way to love each other is the third point, is that we need to lose ourselves and get rid of your pride. Lose yourself and get rid of your pride. And this may be hardest because we see exactly what pride gets you through Haman's actions, he was filled with rage because here's one person who's not banging down to me. And only one part of that was because he was Jew. The other part is that he's just not doing what he's supposed to be doing. So imagine the fury. And I've seen, I've seen officers that do this because you're supposed, enlisted are supposed to support officers. You salute them, you know. And sometimes it's hard to tell. You can't see. Um, so sometimes it's better to salute if you don't know or not. But sometimes it's too fast and you can't do it. But I've seen people get yelled at, get dressed down in public because you didn't salute somebody and you get kind of embarrassed or they want to embarrass you because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a respect thing. You're supposed to. It's custom and courtesies. You know, I get it. But at the same time, you're so prideful that you just want to ball somebody out in the, in, the, in the chow hall or in the street somewhere. And it's like this, is, this does nobody for, no good for anybody. And you're probably making yourself look worse than I, than I just looked by not saluting you. Right, so that's, that's what we have with Haman going on here. Is he, he is so wrapped up in what he thinks things are due to him, he doesn't care. Right, this is my position, this is my honor, this is my authority. You're disrespecting me. You know, when really, I just need to give the position the respect. But Paul says in verse 10, if we saw that in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, honor one another above yourself. How easy is that to do? Sometimes not very. Sometimes not very at all. Because I'm do the honor. I'm the person. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Who are you? What did you do for me? Right? Versus what can I do for you? Because that's what Jesus did. He said, what can I do for you? What can I do to make this right with your sinful debt that you created? I'm going to pay it. I'm coming down out of heaven. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected for you. Jesus was already perfect. He lived a perfect life. He didn't have to come out of heaven. He could have said, you all know the rules. Too bad you didn't do it. Everybody will pay the consequences. But he said, I will go and take care of it. 
Right? He humbled himself. And as Paul says in Ephesians, and in the, the Hebrew of, of the writers of Hebrew also said, right, he humbled himself to the point of death. He stepped out of heaven to do this. He wanted to honor you with his sacrifice. And so we do the same back. We honor God with our sacrifices. So we honor other people because these are the two greatest commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And so chapter 12, verse 13 of Romans, Still, we're still in Romans, so if you just don't have it circled yet or whatever, write it down, Romans 12, go home and read it this week. Verse 13, he says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Give the little things you have, even if it's your last piece of bread, give it to somebody else. Right, just like the widow with Elijah. And I'm bringing these things up because we've already talked about these, so this is how everything relates to each other. Right, these stories we talk about, they're all interrelated. And again, going to verse 14, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. I think the country as a whole, the world as a whole, is not living harmoniously with one another very often, very much. Houses, families, cities, neighborhoods, whatever, countries, we're not very good, it seems like, with living in harmony. Now, there may be somebody else stirring the pot, and we need to recognize that as well, that the enemy is doing anything he can to get us off this track. Anything he can, anybody he could use, because like Haman, he's using Haman to get rid of the problem that he sees, and God says, that's fine, I can fight that battle too. But once we realize where the source of it is coming from, because see, Haman is driven by an evil purpose. He's driven by evil if we recognize that, it's easy to not necessarily hate Haman anymore. We hate what's driving him. And you can have a conversation with somebody and say, okay, why are you so angry? What's the actual problem? Right? Because if I come home and there's a piece of paper on the floor and I yell at the kids or my wife, I'm not actually mad at the paper or the fact that the paper is on the floor Something else happened during the day that made me mad. Right? So it has nothing to do with the paper. The paper's just there and I can yell at him for something. That's really what's going on. Haman is, is evil and he's, he's been made evil, but he's, he's being controlled by Satan. But, so we need to make every effort to live in harmony with one another and to not be proud. He goes, Paul goes on to say in verse 16, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. If we would put away our pride, if we would put away things, things would get done a lot quicker. Things would get done a lot easier. Because I don't care whose idea was best or right or whatever. I don't care. I just want to get it done. So if your idea is better today, great. If your idea is better today, tomorrow, great. I don't care. I just want the stuff done. Right? God wants it done. God wants people to come to him. If you want to bicker and argue over certain things, and you see, if you're paying attention to the, the overall things that are going on in the SBC, that's kind of what happens. We're, we're so far down in the weeds of stuff. I'm trying to call people out all the time, which we need to be careful. We do call out correct theology that needs to be preached. 
But other things, it can be also done with great, be done with grace. And that goes on with our lives every day. Because here's the thing, right? Paul says, do not be proud or be willing, be willing to associate with people of low position. For us, we are all in the lower position than God. But Jesus came down and associated with us. Jesus died when we were his enemies. We were the world. He died to purchase his people. He hated sin and called it out when appropriate. So I want to make sure that we understand that, that people sin and they need to be called out. The sin needs to be called out. Right? He lived among the sinners. But he stepped off the throne and he came down to defend us. He came down to earth to defend us. And that is the good news. That is the good news, folks, that, that your redemption is near. Just like we sung in the song, right? We have the God of the universe who had a plan already in order to save his people, to save you, to save me, to save your, your son, your daughter, your neighbor, whoever it is. He has a plan because as we see, Esther is partly an eschatological book. It's a little bit, in some respects, it has an eschatological nature to it. Somebody wants to destroy, so if you put Haman as the Antichrist a little bit, you have these things going on where right, Esther steps in and she's the Christ figure. She saves, his pe she saves God's people because God has put her in this position. Because God saves people, his people, even though it looks like evil is going to win, right? If we just stop the story here, like, oh my God. You know, this is that serial cliffhanger you had when you were a kid. You go to the movies and pay your nickel, and you're like, what is going to happen to Indiana Jones today? And then all of a sudden they stop and go, well, I have to wait till next week. Yeah, I better save my nickel so I can go back because I don't want to be the only one who doesn't know what happens. But you spend all week trying to figure out what's going to happen. If we did it that way, if we didn't have the book printed, that's what we'd be doing, right? God will triumph because he already has. Jesus' resurrection has conquered the only real hold the world has on us as believers, and that's death. He's conquered it. He's beat it. He was resurrected. We have the resurrection. We know that we will be resurrected. So here's the thing. Be like Mordecai. Right? Be like Mordecai. Just like be like Mike. Do not honor the world. Do not honor God's enemies because they are our enemies as well. And fight the hate with love. Right? Resist and rebel, but do not fight like the world if you can help it. Right? When the time comes, God is going to have his vengeance and his wrath on those people who are his enemies. We do not have to do anything. We are in the army, but we're not the generals. We're not making the decisions. Right? So as we go out this week, as we are thinking about this, as we have evil come to our lives and people trying to, obviously we don't have people trying to kill us here in our, in our lives generally, but if we have encounter evil, know that God has got a plan for a way out for you. Right? Even though it may take a little while, it still will happen. So as we, as we transition back to the songs, right, let's think about that. Think about how we could just trust in God and just let him work his plan.